New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Good morning. Today we move on to Act 5 of the great drama of Scripture, which runs from the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts to the return of Christ in the book of Revelation. And it's the great era of the mission of God's people in the light of the coming of the Messiah Jesus and his death and resurrection and his ascension to the seat of God's government of history. And this, of course, is the part of the drama of Scripture where we ourselves participate as actors. So how then are we to live within this part of the Bible's own story? How are we to live as people of peace? Now, I thought of various New Testament texts that would help us answer that. I mean, we could take Romans, for example, where Paul instructs us within the fellowship of believers. He says, let us therefore make every effort to do what makes for peace and to mutual edification in Romans 14. Or, on the other hand, in our relationships with the outside world, the rest of society, Paul urges us to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, Romans 12. However, for today, I've chosen to focus on Paul's instructions in Titus chapter 2. You see, Paul is very concerned in this letter about how the gospel will be perceived in the outside world. How Christians behave will either commend the gospel in the public arena or bring it into disrepute. And that's what's at stake. And in order to help us to grasp and remember the message, I'm calling this a 54321 sermon. Paul addresses five groups of people. He gives four commands for self-control. He motivates us by three so-that's. He speaks of two epiphanies or appearances, and he has one overriding repeated message, which is do good stuff. So first of all, then, five groups of people. Paul has been telling Titus that he needs to appoint elders for the churches in Crete and to make sure that they are teaching the true message of the gospel in order to counteract so much false teaching that was going on. And then at the start of chapter two, he says that it's not just a matter of sound doctrine. He says what also needs to be taught is how believers ought to live in a way that is appropriate or fitting or consistent with that teaching. So there's both a truth that we need to know, and there are things that we need to do or not to do consistently with what we know as sound teaching. And then Paul illustrates his point, you see, by mentioning all the typical groups of people that would be there in the house churches, five of them, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. And what's interesting here, you see, is that in each case, he calls for behavior that would have been generally approved of for people at those different stages of life or status in society, at least as ideal standards by the ethical writers and the traditions of the Greek and Roman culture of that time. Some of the words that Paul uses here in these verses are well documented in other writings. Like, for example, older men are to be sober and dignified. Older women are to be reverent, not gossiping or drinking too much. Younger men are to be self-controlled. Younger married women are to be good wives and mothers, which 
by the way, didn't mean that Paul thought that a woman's place was in the home only. Remember that his first convert in Europe was Lydia, who was a wealthy merchant trader and traveler with a household capable of supporting Paul's ministry later. And slaves, well, yes, they should be hardworking and trustworthy. Now, of course, Paul will go way beyond these secular standards, as we might call them, and we look at that in a moment. But he does at least want Christian believers to live up to the best of what the culture thought was right and proper. I mean, Christians were going to get enough opposition and suspicion for their faith without bringing all that upon themselves just by offending their neighbors with what everybody in that culture would have regarded as unacceptably bad behavior in public or at home. So, as I said, Paul lists some culturally approved ethical ideals. But in reality, of course, the standards of actual pagan behavior were an awful lot lower than those ideals. Paul knew that well, and he describes them in some other places. I mean, you can see the way Paul describes the surrounding culture in places like Romans chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 4. Greed, gluttony, they were the marks of the rich, while dishonesty and theft were rife from the top to the bottom of society. Sexual immorality of all kinds permeated the, the, the culture. Some of them were condemned, but others were socially acceptable. Sensuality, impurity, drunkenness, those are just some of the marks of a fallen society that Paul observed in his day. And not a lot has changed, has it? So that may well be the reason for Paul's emphasis on self-control. And you notice that four times he insists on it, and that's my number four. To the older men, verse two, to the younger woman in verse five, the younger men in verse six, and all of us in verse 12. Now, the word that Paul uses here, translated self-control, can mean moderation, sound, healthy thinking, or self-discipline, as it is translated in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For the Spirit of God that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. There's that word. And self-control is also the last in Paul's list of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, it's actually a slightly different word, but it's the same basic meaning. And there in Galatians 5, the way that Christians should behave if they are bearing the fruit of the Spirit is in stark contrast to the ways of the world. Because far from living up to even their own best standards, Paul says, quoting from Galatians 5, that the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, says Paul, as I did before, that those who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we can easily see, can't we, that those marks of a life filled with the Holy Spirit and bearing his fruit go way beyond the secular standards of just merely acceptable behavior or good citizenship. So the self-control then that Paul urges on old and young, on men and women within the church, is not just a kind of rigid conformity 
to the idealistic social norms of just good etiquette. No, this is the transforming power of God's spirit, which they would need in order to resist the pressures and the temptations of the actual moral corruption that surrounded them every day. And the same is true for us, isn't it? I mean, whether we're old or young, male or female, we need the Holy Spirit's power to exercise the kind of self-discipline and self-control and real courage that is going to be needed for Christian living in a culture that is not only blatantly unchristian, but is increasingly becoming anti-Christian. But why? And this leads me then from five groups and four commands for self-control to three so that's. I wonder, can you see them there in verses 5 and 8 and 10? So that no one will malign the word of God, verse 5. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they've got nothing bad to say about us, verse 8. And so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive, in verse 10. You see, Paul has got very strong reasons for the instructions that he's giving. Two of them are negative and one is gloriously positive. And all of them relate to how the church is viewed in the world outside. See, Paul's concern is for the impact of Christian behavior in the public arena. As John Stott says in his commentary on, on, on Titus, he says, our lives either adorn or discredit the gospel. In other words, these reasons that Paul gives, they're thoroughly missional reasons. Now, the first two negative so-that's focus on what people may say if Christians live badly. If, for example, uh, the younger women in the church assert that because of what they may call the word of God, that is the gospel that has generated their Christian faith, they say, well, we're now liberated, we're free, so we can live as we like, breaking free from their marriage or neglecting the care of their own children in their household. Well, then their non-Christian neighbors are going to say, well, if that's the word of this so-called God that they worship, if that's what he tells them to do. We, we want nothing to do with such a God, whatever he says. And then in verses seven and eight, Paul tells Titus himself to make sure that his teaching is backed up by his own example. And here, Paul is touching on one of the most painful issues, even in our own day. And that is when great and famous Christian leaders are caught out in conduct that totally negates all that they've been preaching and teaching. And then they are rightly and deservedly opposed and shamed. But when Christian leaders like Paul himself and like Titus that he's urging set an example of all that they teach and that they can't be faulted on grounds of hypocrisy or inconsistency, then, says Paul, it's those who malign them who should be ashamed. But after those two negative so-thats comes this wonderfully positive so-that, which paradoxically is the one that's given to slaves. And it seems that almost certainly there were many slaves who responded to the good news of the gospel and became followers of Jesus. So these house church gatherings in Crete and elsewhere would have included slaves sitting alongside free men and women. That in itself was unusual 
and quite a countercultural thing. This was part of the reconciling power of the gospel that we were thinking about yesterday, that in Christ there is neither slave nor free. Uh, but many of these Christian slaves would have had non-Christian masters and owners. Now, Paul addresses Christian slaves in four places in the New Testament. In Colossians and Ephesians, he exalts their status and their work by saying that it is the Lord Christ they are serving. They have become slaves of Christ now, even while serving their human masters. And so they should do good work for Christ's sake. And that, that's such a transforming perspective on even the most degrading status that human beings could be subjected to. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells slaves to respect their masters and to avoid slandering God's name and gospel teaching. And he adds that if their master also happens to be a Christian, then they should respect him even more. So those are three. But here in Titus, Paul adds yet another motivation, which is so encouraging for anybody in such circumstances. Paul says that they are to submit to their masters, to please them, not to become ins insolent and recalcitrant, not to engage in petty pilfering, you know, just the perks of the job, but to be fully trustworthy with all their master's affairs and property. And why should slaves beha behave like that? So that, says Paul, in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, that word, making attractive, is the Greek word that gives us our word cosmetics. It means to decorate, to adorn, to make something beautiful and desirable, attractive. So think about it. Here's a, a pagan Greek or Roman slave owner, a wealthy owner of slaves. And one of his slaves becomes a Jesus follower. And he starts talking about the salvation that he has received from his God. And his life and his work has changed so much for the better. He doesn't talk back anymore. He doesn't have to be watched all the time in case he's nicking the family silver. He can be left in charge of the house and the kids while the master is out on his business and he keeps everything in order. He's become honest. He doesn't tell lies all the time like he used to. And he stopped picking fights with the other slaves. In fact, he's trying to make peace when there are quarrels in the home. <laughs> hey, I like this guy. Or rather, I like what's happened to him. And he says that it's something to do with his new religion. Well, let me have a look at that. This, this actually seems pretty attractive if it changes people like that. Tell me more about this God that you're talking about. You see, simply by living as an honest, trustworthy Christian believer, even as a slave, or in our world, in the workplace, that adorns the gospel. It makes our God talk not only believable, but actually attractive. Well, those three so that's are powerful reasons then for living in a good and acceptable way before the world. But you know, Paul has an even more powerful motivation. And it begins in verse 11. Can you see it there, the word for? And that means that what Paul is about to say next is the major reason and the foundation for all the instructions that he's just been giving up to this point. It's as if Paul is saying, look, this is how I want you to live, and here's why. That's what he means, for. 
And that brings us then from our five groups of people through four commands to self-control and the three so that's to two epiphanies or two appearances. Because the word epiphany simply means that when something appears that was actually always there, but had been hidden. Like when the sun appears from behind a cloud, it was there, but now we can see it. It's come out as it were, it's appeared. So what two appearances does Paul mean? Well, look at verses 11 to 14. It's a wonderful passage. It has the kind of ringing tone that almost reads as if perhaps it was a piece of early liturgy. Perhaps it was read at Christian baptisms to summarize the whole Christian faith. So let me just read it again. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So can you see the two appearances in there, the two epiphanies? One is the epiphany of grace in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. And the other is the epiphany of glory in verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And both, of course, refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, his incarnation, his earthly life and death and resurrection, and then his second coming in glory. And you see, Paul wants us then to live our lives in the light of these two appearings. And this, of course, is where Paul's teaching for Christian believers goes way, way beyond merely secular ethics, you know, just be nice people and good citizens. That's important, but this goes more. This is where Paul's teaching is rooted in the gospel itself, the grace of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, and rooted in the biblical story, past, present, and future, and the future coming of Christ in glory. So let's look at each of these two epiphanies. First of all, then, the epiphany of grace in verses 11 and 12. Now, it's important to say that this doesn't mean that there was no grace before Jesus came, any more than we imagine that the sun doesn't exist before it appears on a cloudy day. Now, the Old Testament is very clear. The Lord God of Israel introduced himself by name to Moses, saying, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And as we saw earlier in this series, God showed them his grace in redeeming them out of Egypt and making his covenant with them and giving them his law for their guidance. All of these things are what John says in John chapter 1, verse 16, grace already given. But when the word became flesh, then grace and truth also became. It's the same word in Greek. The word became flesh and grace and truth became through Jesus Christ. That is, they became visible. They became tangible in the life and teaching and work of Christ. 
God's grace was always there, like the sun. But now in Jesus, God's grace has appeared. It's come out. It's shining brightly and bringing joy and hope to the world. And that grace of God that has appeared in Christ, in Christ's first coming, does two things. Paul says, first of all, that it offers salvation to all people, not just to the Jews who knew God's grace in their own history, but to people of any nation and all nations, just as God had promised to Abraham. And just as Paul is now preaching and teaching to the Gentiles. So he's saying to them, by God's grace revealed in the coming of Christ and at his cross, you too can be saved and belong to God's people, as he said to the Galatians and to the Ephesians and to you and to me. Most of us here are probably Gentiles here on this little island of Ireland on the very edge of the known world in Paul's day. It's by God's grace that we've been saved. And how often we need to remember that and to give thanks for it. That's what Paul repeats and emphasizes again in verse 14, where he says this, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Paul's talking, of course, about Jesus, but his language is straight out of the Old Testament story. When God redeemed Israel out of slavery in the Exodus, consecrated to himself in covenant, called them my very own precious possession. This is the language of Exodus 19. Jesus has done for us what God did for Israel through his redeeming grace in both cases. But secondly, notice that Paul speaks not just of saving grace, but also of teaching grace. The grace of God goes on teaching us, he says in verse 12. The verb is actually a present participle. And God's grace curriculum, in a sense, is both negative and positive. There are things, says Paul, that grace says we must say no to, ungodliness, worldly passions, the ways of the world around us. And instead, it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, which is so much characterized by the precise opposite of those things. So the question to us then is not just have you been saved by grace, but are you being educated by grace? Are you allowing the grace of God in your life to be your teacher, telling you off when you do wrong and encouraging you to live in ways that are pleasing to God? In other words, is God's grace evident not just in the fact that you are saved as a Christian, but also that you are living as a Christian? responding to the grace of God. The tragedy is that there seem to be so many people, often in the public gaze or in social media, who claim to be saved by grace, but there's so little evidence of God's grace in their lives. Certainly very little self-control or godliness in the way they talk or write or blog or behave. So that's the first, the epiphany of grace in verse 11. And then secondly, the epiphany of glory in verse 13. See, Paul looks to the future as he so often does, and he's looking forward to the return of Christ, which not only gives us hope for the future, but also summons us to live now in the light of what will happen then. Now, the language that Paul uses here to speak of the second coming of Christ is, is quite significant. Paul says that we are waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior. 
Now, those precise words, our great God and Savior, were used by some of the Roman emperors, either of themselves or by those who wanted to flatter and applaud them. You know, Caesar, our great God and Savior. That's what they said. Those words are found in ancient scripts. Now, if you knew that the Roman emperor was going to make an appearance in your city that he was coming to visit, then you'd better get ready. The place would be cleaned up. You'd want to make sure that you were known to be an admirer and a loyal follower, his obedient servant. And if the emperor is coming, you need to be on his side or you'd face trouble. So you see, Paul is taking over that kind of language. Our great God and Savior is coming, he says, but not Caesar. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And in the light of his coming in glory, how then should you live? Whose side are you on? Are you living by his standards and commands? So can you see then how in this passage, as so often, Paul is urging us to live within the story, that is the biblical story, as we participate as God's redeemed people in what God is doing in the world. We need to be able to look in both directions, both looking back to the gospel events of the past, God's grace that was made visible in Christ's incarnation and life and teaching and death and resurrection and ascension. We look back to the incarnation and the cross, but we also look forward to Christ's return in glory, and we live today in the light of both God's past and God's future. And that's why those of us who may be Anglican Christians, we know that in the communion service, we proclaim the past and the present and the future. When we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so the question is, are you living in the light of these great gospel facts and truths? Is your life shaped by the grace of past redemption and the hope of future glory? Is that the story that you're living in as you go to work each day, as you make your choices and your decisions, as you act and react in all your private thoughts and words and social conversations? So you see, it's only this solidly Christ-centered, gospel-centered, grace-filled motivation that would be sufficient to enable us to live in all the ways that Paul mentions, and then by living in that way, to be agents of God's peace in our broken world. And so that leads us then to our final point. And you can see it there at the very end of verse 14. Paul talks about a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. So we've journeyed through five groups of people, four commands to self-control, three so that's two epiphanies, and we finally arrive at one repeated message. Do good stuff. This is such an important point for Paul that he repeats the word six times in this short letter to Titus. In fact, I would say that Titus could be called the epistle of good works. <laughs> that might surprise you just a little because so many evangelical Christians are suspicious of even this whole concept of good works because we know rightly that we're saved by grace, not by our good works. And that's absolutely true and Paul insists on it. 
But have we ever really taken seriously the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, the sequence between salvation and good works? Here's what he says. You remember Ephesians 2 verse 8. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then he carries on, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved in order to do good works. And that's exactly what Paul says here again in Titus. Look at chapter 3, verse 8, for example. Paul says to Titus, I want you to stress those, these things so that those who have trusted in God, who are justified by faith, those who have trusted in God, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And can you see, even as we look at our NIV Bibles, if that's what you have, can you see how the NIV understands this one central message? Just look at the subheadings in your Bible. It talks about appointing elders who love what is good, rebuking those who fail to do good, doing good for the sake of the gospel, saved in order to do good. Great. Saving grace must be evidenced by lives that are changed for good. So those headings in the NIV do stress this one core message of the letter. But here I do have to think that the NIV's constant translation of just doing what is good rather weakens, I think, the sharp, concrete words that Paul actually uses. He uses the phrase good works. In fact, those precise words, as I said, occur six times. And that's why I call this the one repeated message. And just so we're clear, here they are. Chapter 1, verse 16, false teachers who are unfit for any good work. That's exactly the same phrase. Chapter 2, verse 7, Titus was set an example to be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, Christ redeemed us to be a people eager to do good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, believers should be ready to do good works. Chapter 3, verse 8, those who have trusted in God are to devote themselves to good works. And chapter 3, verse 14, his very last instruction in the book, the same message, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing good works. <laughs> I mean, can you miss it? Paul here is in complete agreement with Peter, who emphasizes the same thing throughout his letter, 1 Peter. Repeatedly, Peter says that Christians should be doers of good even if they suffer for it. Now, the verb that Peter uses there is actually a secular technical word. It had a, a social cultural meaning in Roman society. It was a word that referred to and used about people who made some contribution to the common good, some public service, some generous benefaction to the public uh, society. Indeed, that word benefactor is simply the Latin translation for Paul's Greek word good doers. So Christians, say Paul and Peter and James, following Jesus, of course, should be people who are visible, who are known for doing good as salt and light in the community, as Jesus said. Well, are we? I mean, there are so many ways in which this can be worked out in our society and in our day and age, in which we as Christians can be doers of good, not do-gooders, 
you know, not in that negative sense of busybodies, but people who are simply doing good stuff in our daily work, in volunteering, in acts of kindness and service, in those ministries of compassion for people in need, in seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed, and also in managing our own homes and nurturing children, caring for the sick, so on and so on. Now, none of these things, of course, make us any more Christians or any more saved or any more justified. Those things are entirely by God's grace through faith. But all of these things, all of these ways, and many more that we could list and discuss and talk about, are ways in which we can live as people of peace. So that simply through doing good, we can be adorning the gospel so that others may see and believe and come to faith and salvation. And may God help us to be such people for Christ's sake and for God's glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.